So, good morning, everyone. Christ is risen. The correct response is, indeed, he is risen. You see, I go to a Byzantine Catholic church, and we have all these kinds of calls and responses. You know, like, God is good. All the time. Well, that's actually pretty ancient. In the Byzantine church, we've got a number of these, and they change depending upon the part of the liturgical year we're in. And since at the moment we're in Easter, I say Christ is risen, and you say, indeed he is risen. So let's just try it one more time, just to get us in the mood. I was singing the Matt Maher song, uh, Christ is risen from the dead, when I was on my way over here. And so I expect a lot out of you guys. So Christ is risen. That was pretty good. <laughs> I'd like to thank the Elshadai community for inviting me to come and spend some time with you today. And for each of you for turning up. Even at the moment, you might be under the misconception that you just decided you would come here tonight. But the truth is, you were called here. God called you here. That's why you're sitting on this seat. And so I would just invite you to be open to whatever God has planned for you today. It might just be one thing. It might be something that I'm going to say. It might be something somebody else is going to say. It might be something you'll hear in one of the songs. As you heard, my name is David Bates. I have a blog, RestlessPilgrim.net, which I shamelessly promote all the time. And there I write about sacred scripture, church history, and apologetics. I also have a podcast, The Eagle and Child, where together with my co-host Matt, each week we address a chapter of a work by C.S. Lewis, the Christian apologist. And he is also the guy who authored The Chronicles of Narnia. And so you can probably expect a quote or two from him over the course of this talk. But before we go much further, we should pray. So we're going to invoke the Holy Spirit, but we're going to do it Eastern style, Byzantine style. So I'm going to pray a prayer to the Holy Spirit that we pray in every Sunday liturgy. So if you'll please join me. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly King, Comforter, Spirit of Truth, everywhere present and filling all things, treasury of blessings and giver of life, come and dwell within our hearts, Cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O gracious one. St. Francis of Assisi, pray for us. St. Jerome, pray for us. St. Jean Vianney, pray for us. St. Ignatius of Antioch, pray for us. St. Teresa of Calcutta, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we pray to the Lord. We've asked for heaven's help. Uh, and you'll hopefully see over the course of this talk why I picked on those particular saints. How did everyone's Lent go? Well, yeah. mine was, it was a very busy Lent for me this time. Uh, lots of talks at different parishes and groups. And about a month ago, John sent me a message asking if I could speak at the conference today. He explained the theme, that it was unseen, and that the key passage was at the end of John's Gospel where Jesus says to doubting Thomas, by the way, poor Thomas, screws up once and everybody keeps bringing it up, <laughs> where Jesus says to him, have you come to believe because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. And so after John explained this to me, I suggested that I give a talk entitled Jesus in Disguise, because John's description of this conference put me in mind of a catechism question that I encountered during the time when I was going through my first Holy Communion. The question was, where is God? 
And the answer to that question was, God is everywhere, but he is present in a special way at the Mass, in the priest, in the congregation, in the scriptures proclaimed, and most especially in the most blessed sacrament. And really the rest of this talk is, takes that outline as, uh, as, as an example. It's inspired by that catechism response. Is God closer to us than we imagine? If only we have eyes to see and ears to hear. And so in this presentation, I'm going to be looking at the main ways that I myself encounter God in the everyday. And as I go along, I'm going to be offering some suggestions as to how we can become more receptive to meet him in these different ways. And my list isn't going to be exactly the same as that catechism answer, and it's also not going to be exhaustive, but it's going to cover many of the similar points. So these are not the only ways you can encounter God, but these are just some of the ways that I myself do, some of the ways that I find Jesus in disguise. So the first way is through nature. And this is perhaps one of the most common ways in which people first encounter God, Christians and non-Christians alike. And if you read through the Psalms, you find them again and again coming back to nature. In Psalm 104, it says, How many are your works, O Lord! In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is a sea vast and wide, spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things, both great and small. And in Psalm 96, the psalmist even commends nature itself to praise God, to praise its creator. He says, let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Have you ever thought, what is it about nature that inspires us to contemplate divine things? I mean, so much so that in the history of humanity, we've actually tended towards paganism to actually worshipping the creation rather than the creator. And we actually get a clue in the New Testament. In Paul's epistle to the Romans, he says that ever since the creation of the world, the invisible attributes of God's eternal power and divinity have been understood and perceived by what he has made. There's something about the nature of the invisible God, and especially his power, which we see in nature. And Psalm 19 says something very similar. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Because nature is often grand in scale. When we stand on a mountaintop or in a valley by a hundred foot waterfall, if you go to Yosemite, we feel our smallness. And how many of you have looked up into the night sky and seen all of the stars and marveled at the vastness of the universe. I remember that really came home to me when I was visiting Australia, when I was looking up at an unfamiliar sky, the, the stars of the Southern Hemisphere, and realizing how vast the universe is. Because surrounded by this immensity, something so much greater than ourselves, we are pointed towards the one who is greater even still, El Shaddai. God Almighty. And as well as being vast, nature is often beautiful. Last year, I walked to the Camino de Santiago. 
It's a pilgrimage route from the south of France all the way across Spain to the west coast. It took me about 36 days. Every morning I would arise while it was still, still dark. But every day I would always pause when it was time for the sun to rise. When I see the first shards of light break across, break across the horizon in all hues of orange, yellow and gold. And I have similar experiences when I go surfing early in the morning. And nature is also beautiful in her intricacy. We don't do it so much when we're older, but as a kid, did you ever squat down among some dirt and just watch all of the ants wandering around and just marvel at the complexity of nature? Our hearts are moved by beauty and they point us towards beauty himself. We move from the design to the designer. The art points us to the artist. Now in my opening prayer, if you recall, when I invoked the Holy Spirit, I described him as everywhere present and filling all things. There's something about nature which humanity recognizes, there's no better word for it, holy. And it's for this reason that poets have often said things like this. This is the English poet, Elizabeth Barrett Browning. She said, the earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush a fire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. Earth is crammed with heaven, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. But what can we do to see God more clearly in nature? Well, I'd suggest the first thing is get outside. <laughs> I wouldn't have had to have said this in previous generations, but in 21st, living, it's 21st century living, it's very easy to spend your entire day in an air-conditioned office, drive home to an air-conditioned house, and then go to an air-conditioned cinema. We rarely stray even into our back garden, let alone into the wild. So head out into nature, go camping, go for a hike, and take some of those psalms with you. And also, we live in San Diego. I mean, come on. <laughs> Before I left England, I made sure all of my school friends knew that I was moving to Southern California. I felt it was important that they all knew that, you know, I won. <laughs> we live in the closest thing to paradise. Yet how many of us really make the most of it? When was the last time you went to the beach? Seriously, take some time, stop on your way home from school, on your way home from work, by Mission Bay, one of the beaches. Take some time to enjoy the beauty of God's creation, which we're fortunate enough to live in. So the first way that we can encounter God, the first way we can encounter Jesus in disguise is through nature. The second way, I would suggest, is through the Bible. So a little bit about my background. I was raised Catholic. I might have had a few doubts during my teenage years, but by and large, I've always described myself as a Christian. But when I went to university, everything changed. In my second year, I moved off campus into a house that was owned by and situated next to the Catholic church in the city. Soon after I arrived, they started student masses. And there was also a prayer group that began to meet. And the prayer group was run by a group called Verbum Dei. It literally means word of God. And the format of the evening was very simple. 
the, one of the missionaries would offer a reflection, maybe about 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And then we would spend about 20 minutes in silence, praying about what we had just heard. And we were also given a sheet of paper that was full of short pieces of scripture related to that night's subject. And it was during one of these times of silent prayer that something happened. My faith came alive. And it happened as I was reading Jeremiah 1, verse 5. This is what it says. The word of the Lord came to me. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as prophet to the nations. Now, I knew this passage. I'd done religious studies in school. But that night, those words had special power in them. It was like the Holy Spirit had gone over them with a highlighter. Something awoke in me when I read those words. I began to comprehend that I was truly known by God. And it was the turning point in my faith journey. Those words became not just strokes on a page, but an encounter with God. I heard the voice of the shepherd. One of the primary ways in which we encounter God is through his scriptures. God doesn't speak to me. Some people say this. How often, how often have you heard that? Or, why doesn't God just tell me what to do? That's a very common lament. And whenever I hear that, I always gently ask the person the last time they cracked open a Bible. If you want to hear from God, read his book. Does that sound very Protestant? Because it shouldn't. It's very, very Catholic. In the Second Vatican Council, there's a document called De Verbum. And it speaks at length about the Bible. And in it, it says, In the sacred books, the Father who is in heaven meets his children with great love and speaks to them. God speaks to us through scripture. And it goes on and says, The force and the power of the word of God is so great that it stands as the support and energy of the church, the strength of faith for her sons, the food for the soul, the pure and everlasting source of spiritual life. If we wish to see Jesus, he is to be found within the pages of our Bibles. So if this is one of the ways that we can see Jesus in disguise, what can we do to see him more clearly? The straightforward answer is quite simple. Spend more time in your Bible. Rocket science, right? If we want to hear the voice of God, we need to crack it open. But yet many people don't. Or if they do, they don't stay there for very long. Now, I've got a different talk on this subject. If you go to my website, restlesspilgrim.net, there's another talk there called How to Read the Bible Like a Catholic. And I go into many, much more detail. But today I'd just like to offer two suggestions. The first is join a Bible study group. Study the Word of God together with your friends and encourage one another. Now, what might you read? Again, in my talks, I offer some suggestions, but my number one suggestion is read the Sunday Mass readings. Read them before going to Mass. In fact, I'd say if you want to transform your Mass-going experience, if you want to get more out of Mass, the number one thing you can do is read the readings before you get to church. 
And the other reason I suggest this is because there are so many free resources available these days. Scott Hahn, Brand Petrie, um, a wonderful podcast called The Lanky Guys. These are all free resources that will help you understand the readings that you're reading. So get together in groups and study God's word. But also, I'd encourage you to spend time reading the Bible by yourself. And it doesn't have to be for very long periods of time. If you look in your Bible, you'll see underneath the chapters, there'll be these small sections. They've each got a title, and then usually a handful of verses, probably no more than 20. These are called pericopes. How about if you read through the Gospels, one pericope at a time? What if you read one pericope? You're gonna remember that word at the end of this. What would it look like if, as you were drinking your morning coffee, or tea, if you're very classy, <laughs> if you, during your morning coffee, your morning tea, you read one pericope, and then before you turned out the light at night, you read just one pericope. It'll probably take you less than a minute. Over time, you would end up reading all of the Gospels and knowing them very well. If we want to encounter Jesus, we should look for him in his written word. So way number one, can everyone remember what it was? Ooh, this is, you guys need to, we need, we need to give you guys your Wheaties. Number one was nature. Way number two, the Bible. So way number three is the blessed sacrament. I mean, honestly, I would be very remiss if I was talking about Jesus in disguise and I didn't mention the Eucharist. Because in the Eucharist, under the form, under the signs of bread and wine, Jesus comes to us, body, blood, soul, and divinity. It looks like bread. It tastes like bread. It smells like bread. It looks like wine. It smells like wine. It tastes like wine. But it's not wine. As the Latin hymn, Tantum Ergo, says, faith for all defects supplying, where the feeble senses fail. It's saying that where our senses can't perceive Jesus truly, our faith takes over. And the classic text for this is John 6. This is after the feeding of the 5,000. The crowds follow Jesus to the other side of the Sea of Galilee because they want more free bread. And it's at this point Jesus starts telling them that he is the living bread come down from heaven and that his flesh is real food. His blood is real drink. The crowd are confused by this. They're shocked by this. But Jesus doesn't back down. He says, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Many disciples left that day because of this hard teaching. The 12 did remain, but not because they'd understood everything. When Jesus asked them if they're leaving, St. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter didn't understand this whole eat my flesh, drink my blood thing any more than anyone else, but he trusted Jesus. He knew Jesus was where he needed to be. This was where there was life, even if he didn't fully understand it. He extended Jesus a line of credit, of trust. And all this paid off the following year, where at the time of Passover, 
Jesus took the bread, took the cup, and said, this is my body, this is my blood. And he instituted the Eucharist and the priesthood. Now, personally, despite the very obvious nature of Jesus' words, I honestly don't know how I missed this for so long, I remained blind to the Eucharist for a very long time. But the man who really opened up my eyes lived in the first and second century. He's what we call an early church father. His name is Ignatius of Antioch. He was bishop there, and in the year 107, he is arrested and taken in chains all the way from Antioch to Rome to be thrown to wild beasts. And along the way, Ignatius wrote seven letters, and there's a real treasury of teaching there, particularly concerning the Eucharist. He describes it as the bread of God, the gift of God, and my personal favorite, the medicine of immortality. The part which really hit me like a thunderbolt, though, was when he spoke about a group of heretics who would not join the Catholics in their Eucharist. He says, because they confess not that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, which suffered for our sins, and which the Father, in his goodness, raised up again. So how can we see Jesus more clearly in the Eucharist? Well, as you just heard from my own story, digging into church history made a real difference. But probably one of the best ways of growing in love of the Eucharist and being able to recognize Jesus there is to spend time in adoration. One of my personal heroes, Archbishop Fulton Sheen, he encouraged every person he met to do a holy hour, to spend an hour of adoration before the Lord at least once a week. And I'd also suggest get to Mass early. How many times do you turn up at Mass and you're just getting through the door at the halfway through the first hymn and you're all flustered and you're trying to find yourself a spot and see who else is there and you haven't even planned out what you're going to have for brunch later. <laughs> I've been around in California long enough. I think most American Catholics think brunch is like the eighth sacrament. <laughs> but get to Mass early and pray. Ask the Lord to prepare your heart before you receive him into your body. And don't rush off at the end of Mass. So tempting. But stay and pray. And to encourage you, I have a story. There's this guy called Philip Neri. He was a priest in the 16th century in Rome. And he had a problem that a lot of his parishioners would receive communion and then leave straight away before the end of Mass. Thankfully, these days, we don't have that problem at all. <laughs> so he, he preached. He encouraged everyone to stay and remain pray until the end of Mass, even a little bit beyond. But there was one parishioner who apparently didn't hear. He kept leaving straight after communion. And so one Sunday, St. Philip was ready. As the man was leaving, he sent two of his acolytes to go with him. And holding candles, they walked either side of him as he was walking into the marketplace. As everyone was laughing and pointing at this very strange sight of this businessman wandering around, with these two altar servers holding large candles. As you can imagine, he was rather annoyed and asked them what they were doing. And they told him that Father Neri had told them to accompany him. So the guy returned to the church and demanded to know why St. Philip did this. St. Philip responded, it is to pay proper respect to our Lord, whom you carry away with you. Since you neglect to adore him, I sent the servers to take your place. Philip's point was that after we receive the Eucharist, 
the body of Christ, we become living tabernacles of God in a very special way. So if there is any time to kneel and pray in thanksgiving, it's after receiving the Eucharist. And you'll be pleased to hear that in the story, the man did repent. He recognized his fault and asked for forgiveness. So stay after the Eucharist, because you might end up with a priest like Father Neary. I hope we have many priests like Father Neary, but I will say, not in my parish, please. So what was the first way that we see God? Nature. Nature. What is the second way we see Jesus in disguise? And the third way? The Blessed Sacrament, in the Eucharist. The fourth way in which we encounter Jesus in disguise is through our priests. Now, I've been fortunate enough to know some truly wonderful men of God. One of them was the priest who baptized me, Father Nicholas. He moved around quite a few parishes, but still, while I was growing up, he was close enough in the area that he would often stop in for a cup of tea and a small, or maybe not so small, piece of cake. But he always seemed to be full of joy and energy. He, he was a man who clearly loved his vocation. And he was then involved in one of my later sacraments because I asked him to be my confirmation sponsor. And for many years, he was also my confessor. He would listen to my confessions, give me some advice, some encouragement, and then I would kneel before him as he laid his hands on me and told me that my sins were forgiven in Jesus' name. And there are many other wonderful priests I've had in my life, such as my former housemaster. Yeah, housemaster, just like in Harry Potter, it's all true. <laughs> as well as the pastors at the different parishes to which I've belonged. However, what about the priests that I've not felt such a close bond with? What about the priests I've even rather disliked? How can I see Jesus in disguise there? This was a great stumbling block for me in my 20s when I returned to the Catholic Church. I mean, I'd overcome most of my objections to Catholicism in general and the priesthood in particular. But what did I do about these priests? The priests whose homilies were rather uninspiring or the priests who seemed rather bored by my confession. I kept looking at his watch. Or the priests who, as far as I could see, seem to be in possession of a particularly obvious vice. How do I see Jesus in disguise? And two things came to my rescue. Church history again, and also some good theology. As I'm sure you're aware, in, in the early church, in early Christianity, there was great persecution. And through these persecutions, there were many martyrs and confessors. But not everybody held fast to their testament to Christ. Some people lapsed. Some people denied Christ and offered sacrifice to the emperor. And then the church had a problem. What do we do about these people after persecution now that they want to come back to the church? And there was a group of Christians called the Donatists. They lasted from about the 4th to the 6th century. And these guys were pretty hardcore. Not only did they offer very little hope to the lapsed to ever come back into the church. They claimed that the sacraments of the priests who had lapsed were utterly invalid. They said that the sacrament will only take effect if the priest who celebrates that sacrament is holy. They thought that it only becomes Jesus' body and blood if that priest is holy. If that priest isn't holy, 
it remains just bread and wine. Thankfully, the Bishop of Rome and the wider Catholic Church rejected this view. They saw that after an appropriate time of penance, the lapse could return to the church, and even fallen priests could be restored. And in opposition to these kinds of rigorous groups, the Catholic theology on the subject was more clearly articulated. When a priest celebrates a sacrament, they work ex opere operato, which means in the, in, the, in the doing. The sacraments depend upon the power of God, not the personal sanctity of the priest. When the priest celebrates the sacraments, he acts in persona Christi, in the person of Christ. Jesus borrows the priest's hands, his feet, his voice, in order to impart grace. Jesus turns up regardless of how holy the priest is. That's very reassuring. As my heart was starting to return to the Catholic Church, I read a book about St. Francis of Assisi. And I remember one story where St. Francis had found out that there was a priest in a, in a neighboring village who had been openly fornicating. And so St. Francis went to go meet him. And as I'm reading the book, I'm turning the page, and I'm thinking to myself, go get him, Francis. Priest of hellfire. We need to get this priest back in line. Do you know what he did? He went up to the priest, knelt down, and kissed his hands. Because these were the hands that brought the Eucharist to the people. Even though I had trouble, St. Francis didn't. He could see even the worst of priests. He could see Jesus in disguise. So how do we open ourselves up to more clearly see Jesus in our priests? Well, first of all, I would say, spend time hanging around awesome priests, men who are clearly excited and love their vocation. Fortunately, in this diocese, we have many. And I'd also recommend getting a regular confessor. And whenever your, your confessor is pronouncing the words of absolution over you, be conscious of the one who is doing the forgiving. It's Jesus who is forgiving you through the priest. Jesus is borrowing his hands in blessing and he's borrowing his voice to proclaim that your sins have been forgiven and you can go in peace. What was way number one? Nature. Nature. Way number two? The Bible. Way number three? It's a sacrament. Way number four? Priests. Final way. Way number five? Through people. There was once a man who was in his house and there had been reports that heavy rains were coming. There was danger of flooding. And so the local sheriff drove out to the man's house in his truck and said, there are really bad rains coming. I've come to take you to safety. And the man says, no thanks. God will save me. The guy leaves in his truck. A little later, the rains start falling. The water starts rising. And then a guy comes in a boat and he says, I've come to save you, to take you to some dry land. And the guy says, no thanks. God is going to save me. A little bit later, he's had to retreat onto his roof because the, the water has risen so high. And a helicopter comes and they drop down a ladder. And they say, we've come to take you to safety. And the man says, no thanks. God is going to save me. The guy drowns. And he comes to heaven and says, what the heck? God, I thought you were going to save me. God said, I tried. I sent a truck, 
I sent a boat, and I sent a helicopter. The man in the story couldn't fathom the idea that God could work through people. One of the foundational principles of the Catholic faith is that we are made in the image and likeness of God. In the very first book of Genesis, we read this. But what does that mean? There's a British TV show called Black Adder, and it's got this really nasty guy and his idiot sidekick. And he says to him, as we all know, God made man in his own image, but it would be a sad lookout for Christians around the globe if God looked anything like you, Baldrick. That's not what to be made in the image and likeness of God means. It means that something is stamped into our very nature. And as a consequence, we are all holy. We have intrinsic worth. C.S. Lewis said, next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Do you think that? When you see your neighbor, look at your neighbor, realize that this is the holiest object that is gonna be presented to your senses bar the blessed sacrament. Not you two, no more of that. It is, it's fine, it's fine. You can, you, can, you can hold a hand. It's lovely, it warms my heart. Uh, it's one of the great shocks and privileges of Christianity that God uses fallen, sinful human beings to achieve his purposes, even so far as to save souls. There's a poem by Jared Manley Hopkins called Kingfisher's Catch Fire. And in it, he says, For Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his to the Father through the features of men's faces. God is present through each of us, and Jesus is in disguise out there in the world, loving other people. And this was understood by all of the saints, but I'd say most especially St. Teresa of Calcutta. She was very vocal about this, and it was very transparent in her theology, because people would ask her about her ministry to the poor, to the sick, the dying on the filthy streets of Calcutta, and she would talk about going out into the streets to find Jesus in the distressing disguise of the poor, the outcast, the unlovable, the revolting. A few years ago, I went to Rome and I went on pilgrimage. And just that day, I wasn't feeling in the mood to talk to people. So I was dawdling at the back of the line as we were walking through Rome. And I saw out of the corner of my eye a statue and I stopped. It was a bronze statue by a door. It actually turned out to be the hospital. And it was of a beggar wearing a cloak and with his hand outstretched asking for arms. And I noticed something about that statue. The stigmata, the nail wounds. The statue was reminding us that we see Jesus in the poor. There's a statue also like it in Assisi. A couple of months ago I was in Vancouver and I found something very similar. It's a statue of a homeless man sleeping outside of the cathedral. And once again, you could see the nail-marked hands. We encounter Jesus in individuals, but there's also a sense in which we encounter him when we come together, when we go to mass or gather for corporate worship or in a conference like this. When we gather in this way, we see that we are Jesus's body. After I graduated university, I traveled to Australia for a few months and it was there that I first visited Hillsong, one of the mega Protestant churches out there. And it was a very special experience. I had never seen so many Christians together. 
God's presence was palpable. And I saw that I wasn't alone. And this is actually one of the reasons why each year, I think it's coming up in August, why each year we have the Mega Mass, when we take over the Immaculata, and all the young adults are invited to gather together to celebrate the Eucharist, to know that we're not alone. Because we were made for community. You know how we know that? Because God is community. He is a trinity of persons. The Father pours out his love to the Son. The Son pours out his love to the Father. And the love between them we call the Holy Spirit. It's so great that it's another person. I don't know what time you lot got up this morning, but at 6.30 this morning, I was at a coffee shop meeting with a group of three other guys. We meet a couple of times a month to encourage one another, to give each other a kick up the pants when necessary, to push us on to holiness. Community is important. I remember hearing the story of a, a man who had stopped going to church and his priest went to visit him. And both of them were men of few words. So they just sat by the fire, drinking a nice scotch. And then the priest got up, took a pair of tongs, and took one of the coals and put it on the hearth. Now that it was apart from the main fire, they just sat and watched it as it went from white hot to red hot to gray to black. And the priest then left. The man came back to church the next week because he understood the lesson of the coal. That when we separate ourselves from others, our faith tends to grow cold. So how can we see the Lord more clearly in other people? I would say the biggest thing is being cognizant of it, looking for him in others. Remembering that every person you meet is a beloved child of God, imprinted with his image. And serve other people, like Mother Teresa. Jesus is found in those whom we serve. This is seen very clearly in Matthew 24, when Jesus tells the parable of the sheep and the goats. Because he says to them, I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me water to drink. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, I was in prison, you came and visited me. This is where we can find Jesus in disguise. And I'd also just encourage you to become fully integrated into your parish. Know the person in the pew sitting next to you. Talk to them. And join small groups, gather together with your friends to spur one another on and to call one another towards holiness. Now, thus far, we've spoken about how we encounter God in the everyday. And in that last way, we looked at how we encounter him in other people. However, I'd now like to turn the question on its head. Do people see Jesus in you? Does your life look the same as your non-Christian neighbor? When people walk away from an interaction with you, is anything different? Was it just a regular encounter? Or do they walk away noticing how kindly they were treated? Did they think that they just had an encounter with the Lord? Many years ago, I heard a story of two men who met at a football match. Now, I heard this story in England, so this was real football, not this American nonsense where people wear body armor and it takes all day to play. <laughs> breaks for commercials. It's ridiculous. The two men bumped into each other in the pub afterwards, and they fell into conversation. One was a Christian, the other was an agnostic. And when the Christian asked the agnostic why he wasn't a Christian, he brought up an objection that I'm sure many of you have heard, because of bad Christians. 
If Christianity is true, he asked, why have Christians done such terrible things? And if Christianity is true, why does it seem to make such little difference in the lives of many of them? Now, in response, the Christian asked the agnostic if he blamed the manager of the local football team for the recent riots that they had had in the stadium. Because after all, those who had been fighting had been wearing the team's colors. The agnostic replied that no, of course he didn't. The manager wouldn't have endorsed the violence, and in fact, those who committed the violence were disrespecting the colors that they were wearing. The Christian responded that, well, the same is true when Christians act in a way that is unbecoming of Christ. And it certainly undermines the case for Christianity, but in no way does it disprove the claims of Jesus Christ. Christianity is not wrong just because someone who wears the Christian colors, so to speak, wears them badly. This response intrigued the agnostic, and the, over the course of time, the two of them became good friends. And a few years later, the agnostic converted and announced his plans to be baptized. His friend asked him what had made him decide to do this. And his response harkened back to their very first conversation. It was very simple. He said, you wear Jesus very well. Can others say that of us? Could those nearest to you say, you wear Jesus very well. When people see you, do you remind them of Jesus? I'm not talking about just if you have long hair and sandals. Because think for a moment, what is the point of Christianity? Is it to go to church? Is it to receive the Eucharist? Is the central point of Christianity to care for the poor? These are all important aspects of Christianity, but none of them are the point of Christianity. The point of Christianity is very simple, to transform you and every single person you meet into another Jesus. All these other things are ancillary. They're there to serve in this transformation. I'll just give one other C.S. Lewis quotation. In mere Christianity, he says, what I want to make clear is that this is not one among many jobs that the Christian has to do, sort of a special exercise for the top class. It is the whole of Christianity. Christianity offers nothing else. We are called to become like Jesus. This is probably the reason why probably the most popular book of Catholic literature outside of the Bible is by St. Thomas Kempis, The Imitation of Christ. And aside from my own salvation, why is this transformation important? You remember earlier in the talk when I spoke about the sacred scriptures? The problem is that we live in an era of gross biblical illiteracy. Most people, in fact, never crack open a Bible. And when they do, they don't stay there for very long. Therefore, the only testament that someone is likely to read is you, your life. You might be the only gospel anyone ever encounters. And when they do, will they encounter good news? Will they encounter Jesus in disguise? I have one minute left. So allow me to sum up. The Catholic perspective on the world is that the world is luminous. It's a highly sacramental worldview. We see God's hand everywhere in the presence of our lives, hidden behind only a very thin layer of the ordinary. In this presentation, I've encouraged you to find God in nature, encounter him in the scriptures, hear him in the voice of your priest, to find him in the person you meet every day, and finally, like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, to recognize him at the breaking of bread. 
I hope that this talk has encouraged you to see this world with new eyes, with a sacramental vision. Because it's true, earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. Let's just send in prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Lord Jesus, open the eyes of our hearts. Help us to see you hidden everywhere. To see you in our neighbor, to see you in our priest, to see you in the scriptures, to recognize you in the blessed sacrament. And Lord, transform us. Draw us into your divine life so that we may pass this life onto others, so that they too would see Jesus in disguise. And we ask this in your holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, everyone.